This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 1st, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. China has effectively prohibited transactions in cryptocurrencies, seeking instead to try to compel citizens to stick with the central government money. Meanwhile, U.S. regulators continue to wring hands and lean into regs to squelch the financial innovation that crypto represents. Cato's George Selgin comments. When I had heard news that China had effectively prohibited transactions in cryptocurrency, it it was paired immediately with Bitcoin was down 5% on the news. And I thought, well, that's that's just another day in the life of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. So is there a, a broader effect uh, or just how do you evaluate the effects of China saying no to crypto, essentially? Well, if you mean the effect on the value of crypto, you, you've said it. <laughs> you, you look at the price. And I do think that, uh, I do think that China's action is the reason for that particular slide in, in, uh, Bitcoin's price, because of course, uh, China's a big con- country and, uh, a lot of people there, uh, contribute to the demand for Bitcoin. So this, this is bound to have a chilling effect. And it's also having a chilling effect because it, it, uh, it, it might bode badly for, uh, uh, the, uh, prospects of Bitcoin being treated nicely elsewhere. Uh, but one may hope that China's example isn't, isn't widely followed. As for the real serious, the most serious consequences of China's action are more symbolic for most of us, uh, but they're, they're very serious for the Chinese people because it's part of a, it's part of a broader endeavor to concentrate all payments in the People's Bank of China and make it the one uh, source of payments media. And that uh, in turn will allow the Chinese state authorities to snoop more effectively, if not <laughs> quite systematically, on uh, all of their citizens' uh, financial transacting. So that's a big deal. To the extent that uh, policymakers in the U.S. Uh, look at this decision and are looking for uh, a path forward with respect to crypto broadly, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's my previously held beliefs looking into the prism of this event. But it seems to me that this would strengthen the case for not regulating crypto, uh, at least not harshly, in the United States. Well, it all depends, uh, Caleb, because uh, I'm afraid we have lots of people here, including regulators, for whom any stick is good enough to beat cryptocurrencies <laughs> with, and uh, and uh, they they're not necessarily disinclined to treat uh china as a as not as a precedent and even as an example so to go back to the china's general program one of the other elements of it banning bitcoin is part of it but the other part is introducing uh, a chinese central bank digital currency so-called which they will be the first country to do and they're in the process of 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 launching it and uh and of course uh that means being able to uh, track transactions of anyone who uses that currency. So they're they're crushing the private alternatives, not just Bitcoin, but some others as well. Uh, and they're creating a centralized alternative. And yet, uh, 
that second step hasn't uh, caused uh, American policymakers to say, oh, whoa, you know, we don't want to do what China's doing. As we can see, this is very oppressive. On the contrary, people are po in government and elsewhere here in the U.S. are pointing to China's move to establish central bank digital currencies as, a, as, a, as an example that we should follow. Well, they're, in fact, they're saying, Leo Brainerd, for example, is saying, well, you know, if, if we don't do it now, we're going to fall behind. And that's that's become a, an argument for various <laughs> U.S. monetary policy uh, uh, innovations. It's, it's the argument that if if other countries do it, we better do it because we 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 don't want to fall behind, no matter what country <laughs> and why. Uh, I find it I find this really quite repulsive to not put a too fine a point on it. It's not an argument at all, unless it's a bad one. So if for but if you if George Selgin were uh, suddenly the head honcho policymaker in the United States with respect to cryptocurrency. Uh, you care about innovation. You yes. care about yeah. the development of infrastructure around these relatively new uh, tools that are nominally currencies, but are also tools for achieving other ends in uh, financial markets and on the internet. Um, I would think that you, that you would say, look, if you want the innovation to be here, you have to let it grow. I have said that, Caleb. <laughs> I've even written it. Uh, of course, that is my view. Uh, and it's not just about or even primarily about Bitcoin. It's about other kinds of, uh, shall we say, high-tech uh, payments media. Di digital, of course, but even bank deposits are digital. But here I'm talking about payments media that you can use uh, without having to have a bank account. Uh, that sort of thing can be done, and in my, many places is being done, is being provided by private sector fintech firms, as we call them, uh, uh, and, and very successfully. We haven't had as much success, that is, we haven't had a private sector innovations proceed as far here, mostly because we, our government agencies, including the Fed and other bank regulators, have not been uh, so willing to facilitate or enable the private providers of alternative payments media to do the very things that some of those same regulators want the Fed to do by issuing its own uh, digital currency. But in fact, there's, technologically, there's nothing the Fed can offer that the private sector couldn't offer with the crucial difference that if we open it up to the private sector, if we enable the private sector, if we give these firms access to the Fed, which which would help, for example, then um, the private sector could do it more efficiently. There's no question about it. Uh, and they would continue to innovate. And we cannot count on the Federal Reserve, given uh, an exclusive right to, digital, to issue digital person-to-person -person payments media to go on innovating in the future. People should ask themselves, how come central banks have this bright idea of issuing digital currency? Well, it's because the private sector did it first, and now they want to muscle in, typically. But, uh, but who would do the innovating once they muscle in? That we'll have, a old, uh, you know, 100 years from now, We'll have a horse and buggy digital currency the same way today we have horse and buggy 
paper currency because central banks are such poor innovators. You have to wait for some private firms to challenge their monopoly. Then eventually uh, they get the idea of, uh, of uh, copying them and then taking over. So what what are the concerns that uh, regulators have and how legitimate are they with regard to so-called stable coins? There are several of these out there uh, that are essentially pegged to the dollar. They're worth a yes. dollar. They spike to they spike to a dollar one sometimes mm-hmm. and or dip more. to ninety nine cents or mm-hmm. a, a little more around the edges. But for the most part, they just move along in a pretty straight line in terms of dollar denominated value. What's the problem with that? Well, uh, you know, some of them are more volatile than others, Caleb. But as you said, they're, 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 they're sometimes they trade at a premium, not at a discount. And then the premium premium could actually pre- be pretty high. Well, the reason these stable coins exist, first of all, is mostly to uh, assist uh, uh, cryptocurrency trading uh, and to do it more expeditiously than is possible under present arrangements, including arrangements that consist of government barriers to using ordinary uh, means of payment, private means of payment for uh, cryptocurrency, Uh, they're they're more efficient alternatives. And um, and partly they're more efficient because they don't take any time. You can can transfer cryptocurrencies, you can buy and sell dollars, you can buy and sell other currencies with them uh, instantly, anytime, any day of the week. With using stable coins, whereas uh, for most other payments, the private the uh, private system, the the ordinary private dollars like bank deposits, you're very limited in when you can get a quick transaction for all kinds of reasons, almost all of which have to do with regulation. So that's we we've created our regulators that helped cre- have and other countries too have helped create the market for stable coins. But to get to your more basic point. Um, they're not they're not particularly dangerous. It's it's a it's a another bad argument that government regulators have come up with. I mentioned the argument that oh, if other countries do X, then we don't want to fall behind. That's a crappy argument. But then the other argument you're hearing now is well, these things are like old-fashioned banknotes of the wildcat banking era, or they're like money market funds that gave us trouble a few years ago. And that's it. These analogies, this kind of argument by analogy is the the other main argument for uh, trying to suppress uh, cryptocurrencies, but especially stable coins. And it's also not a good argument. They are fundamentally different. They're different in the way they're used why people want them, and ultimately what what sustains demand for them. For example, last year at the outbreak of the COVID crisis, you had uh, runs on money market funds because they still hadn't reformed those correctly. And so we saw a little sign of them being still dangerous despite some post-2008 reforms. But if you look at stablecoins, people were running into stablecoins. They were safe safe havens. In fact, the premiums on some of the most notoriously supposedly unsafe stable coins like tether went way up they shot up so i think the 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 point here is you can't just treat these things as being like other financial assets that uh, have proven occasionally under certain circumstances to to pose some risk to financial stability, you've got to look at them for the unique things that they are and ask what risks they pose. And I think the more people do that, and I hope regulators will 
get around to it, the more they'll find that there's a pretty robust demand for these things. There are reasons why uh, runs on them that cause them to really lose value are actually quite relatively rare. Um, and so uh, that's the sort of thing that uh, I hope uh, will happen more, that people will try to you know, calm down and, and stop using any old argument to suppress uh, these private innovative currencies and look at how they actually work and how much danger they really pose, which is often much less than what people are saying. So uh, you, you mentioned the value that they deliver to traders in mm -hmm. overcoming hurdles created by uh, government regulators. What, what are those hurdles more specifically, and how do stablecoins help with that? Well, for example, a lot of banks don't want to touch cryptocurrency and uh, don't want to deal with it at all. And some regulations make it very difficult for them to do so. Uh, and uh, there are, now there are some private, there are some banks that would like to deal with cryptocurrencies and that are attempting to be able to become able to do so, but they need to have access to the Federal Reserve. If a firm has access to the Fed that's a cryptocurrency exchange, then it can use the Fed's rails like any bank to get fast payments, relatively fast uh, payments done uh, with ordinary or more ordinary uh, dollar IOUs. And there are many firms that would like to do this. Or they'd like to back those IOUs with pretty safe and not absolutely safe assets. But um, if they don't have access to the Fed, none of them does, then uh, they can't do that. And the other thing the Fed has done is to be very slow in encouraging the establishment of uh, so-called real-time re retail payments. That's payments that can be done instantly, which is what these cryptocurrency traders want and which what they can do with stablecoins. They want payments that can be done quickly, any time of day, any time of the year. We could have that in our ordinary payment system, and we do to a limited extent thanks to a private innovation called RTP, which is a clearing private clearinghouse organization that has set up a system uh, that's growing in importance. Uh, but it took a long, a long time for our regulatory officials to uh, encourage that development. And uh, then the Fed decided once this private network was getting going that it was going to jump in and have a rival network, which had a chilling effect on, on people signing up for the private network. And it created a sort of a, a problem of a, a decision problem. Do we join this network or do we wait for the Fed? Uh, you know, will the Fed allow the old, the, the private network, network to survive? So one way or the other, we have not provided some of the services. Uh, our, our legacy payment system doesn't offer some of the services that people dealing in cryptocurrency value and, and need. And so uh, it has contributed to the creation of this stablecoin market where the stablecoins do what those people want. And the premium on stablecoins, which is it's common for them to have, trade at a premium, not at a discount, reflects the special payment services that they provide that, say, ordinary banks can't. 
George Selgin is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and director emeritus of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 